We want to continue on with our series in The Disciples' Quest, and we, today we're coming to Ephesians 5, which is always a wonderful portion of Scripture, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the dynamics and the things that the Scripture lifts out for us in Ephesians 5. Other day, uh, forgive me for saying this in this context, and hopefully it doesn't make anybody feel uncomfortable, but the other day I went to a public bathroom. Is that okay? Can I say that here? It happens from time to time. And as I walked into this public bathroom, it, uh, they had one of those good old-fashioned rolls of paper on one of those like contraptions that they have. You know, how many of you remember those when you had to just roll off the paper? And as I walked in and saw this thing, something in my heart leapt with joy as I saw this paper. Because I suddenly realized I'm not going to have to stand in front of some strange dispenser trying to figure out how do I get paper or air out of this thing. How many of you have ever felt like that when nowadays? That you stand there and I, I mean sometimes you laugh and sometimes you even have to help somebody. No, you ha- wave your hand here. Then the paper comes out. No, no, it's here. Or and then the other day I was also waving my hands and then suddenly realized, but it's one of those where you have to actually turn on the side before the paper comes out. How many of you felt a little bit of tension when you're in the bathroom and you're figuring, I'm going to look like an idiot now. I don't know how to get paper out of this thing or air or anything. I mean, the air ones are the worst because all that air dryers have done is they've repurposed my trousers. Because <laughs> now suddenly... Trousers on trousers, they are now drying devices. I don't know what the ladies do, but us men, isn't this what we do when we come out the bathroom? Because no matter how hard you try, those air dispensers will not dry. I mean, your skin looks like it's going to come off your body. That thing blows, it's like, but it doesn't dry your hands well enough. I understand the purpose of it's all great. But so often nowadays, and it's not only with dispensers in bathrooms, in many different places, you find yourself and you're thinking, how the heck do I switch this thing on? Where's the on switch? Where's the on button to this thing? And it made me think also of so often in our Christian faith, as we engage with life and we come up against the challenges of life and, and, and new things perhaps that we have to encounter and tough times and, or decisions we have to make, and then you come at it as a Christian and you wonder, where's the on switch to this thing? How do I use Christianity in this context? How do I switch it on in this context? Where, where's the on switch? Do I wave here? Do I wave there? Do I roll? How do I get this thing going in this context? What, where is the on switch to our lives? And I believe that when we start reading through Ephesians, Paul immediately gives us what the, 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 just an awareness of what the on switch is in Christianity. That if you want to switch Christianity on, in any situation, this is where the on switch lies. And I want to read for you Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If we read that scripture, what do you think is the on switch for Christianity? What is the fundamental thing that you first encounter when it comes to this faith of ours? What is the first thing that God wants you to experience that switches on? The possibility of us to be his children. I believe from places like 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that the on switch is love, God's love. Receiving and walking in God's love 
is what gets this thing going. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, and these three, faith, hope, and love. And all three are fundamental and so important. But the greatest of these is love. Christianity begins by understanding God loves me. It's the first bit of information that transforms our lives and changes us is when we receive that. And not just as knowledge, but become so aware of what that means, is that God loves us. And the writer here, Paul, writes to us in Ephesians 5. We're going to go through it just now, but he's going to run us through a couple of things and how to live our lives. Remember, we said we are now in the section of Ephesians where it's about how you walk, how you live, how you practically live out your Christianity. In, In the first chapters, we received things from God. Now, because of what we received, we live it out. So our response, this is about our response. So he reminds us, he says, if you want to respond correctly in certain contexts, it begins by first of all understanding that God loves you and that you must imitate that love and walk in that love and experience that love and have that love so that in Christ you can carry on in that which he has done in your life. So for instance, let's say I'm at a, in a conflict situation at work with somebody. Let's say I've got a colleague that for some other reason just decided they don't like me and they, they come against me and they con- you know, they're always opposing me, they're making my life hard. How do I switch my Christianity on in that situation? What is the place from where I start? Where does my on switch lie? My on switch is, Lord, how do I show your love to this person? You've loved me. They may reject me, but Lord, I thank you that I am loved and I don't have to succumb to a spirit of rejection because of this person wanting to reject me because I am loved and you are the higher authority in my life. And I thank you, Lord, that from that basis of knowing that I'm loved, I can engage and switch on my faith by being loved and how do I love in this situation. That's to me how practical it gets. So perhaps another way to illustrate it is to, is, is to use a little torch. These are one of my torches. I have quite a collection of torches. You know, men, it's hard to give us gifts. So uh, sometimes you get the same things. So that's why I've got a collection of torches. Not because I particularly collected them, but because evidently people find it hard to, to know what to buy me. So they give me a torch. Hey? <laughs> well, you, you, okay, let, let, me not, let me not go there. This is not about this, what I like. And, you know, faith without hints is dead. Um, when, you know, when, you, when you're walking around at home, and I, this torch is one, I have it next to my bed, so that if at night, for some other reason, I'm disturbed by something and I want to now walk into the darkness, then I've got a torch that I can just switch on. And I chose this one because it's not that strong. I didn't want to blind anybody. But can you see that it's on now? So I just push the button at the back here, and then I can walk into the darkness and have some sense of what I'm doing, where I'm going, that I'm not going to fall over anything and be able to see. And so our faith is in this world. Our faith in this world is our light that we shine into the darkness of this world. So that when I encounter these difficult situations, and I have to step into places that that's challenging and unfamiliar or arguments or whatever it may be, people thinking things and lifestyles and all of these things. As a Christian, I can step back and say, Lord, let me switch on my light by first of all understanding that you love me and that you love this person. 
or you love the people involved, or your love for this situation. So from that base, I can switch on my light. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to say to us, that before he comes, goes through a list of things we shouldn't do and should do, he says, this is not a list of do's and don'ts. This is how you respond and switch your light on in dark places by doing the following things. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, and I'm going to really cut it short because our time is also even shorter this morning on the first couple of verses. But in Ephesians 5, 13, or 3 to 13, Paul talks about us switching on in terms of our morality, living a life switched on in morality. And he talks quite a number of things about moral choices that we have to make. Can I read this through for you quickly? And, and I didn't put this on a slide. I want you to listen to the word this morning if you can. I'm reading from the NIV. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or, or, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For if this you can be, of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of, God, of God, Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is what I, why it is said, wake up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You and I have received as children of God the light of the truth of God. And it must impact the way we live and behave in our moral choices also. We can't say, I'm a Christian and God loves me, and consistently over a period of time you don't see some of my behavior and my moral choices change. It just doesn't make sense. Because when I've received the love of God, the purity of God, the light of God in me, that light starts dispelling the darkness, even the darkness that is within me, and that light starts shining through me. So it deeply impacts who I am as a person. You and I have received the light. And by the love of God, we can switch on the light. You see, our light is not a bunch of rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's a response to the love of God and the light that has been shone into my life. From that place, I respond. And Paul says to the believers, he says, you don't want to be doing these things. These are the things that are not consistent with what you have received. And he highlights them. And I'm not going to unpack that much and spend any more time there. In verse 15 to 20, he talks about living switched on in wisdom. And we've had a good series in, in Proverbs about wisdom. But he talks about how, what the, the wisdom is that we now have received and how wise people live that have received the love of God. Can I read this portion for you from verse 15? Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. We have a choice. 
You can live a wise, as a wise person or an unwise person, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God, the Father of everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, man, you don't want to party in the way the world does, where people in the world will drink and go into excess and then sing songs to each other and get all rowdy and all, you know, wonderful, and then they start crying and, you know, all of those things that happen, and, and because they, their inhibitions and their, their life has been, you know, their God's been let down, they, they've given in to some substance abuse. And it's in that way that they try and, and just you know, cope with life or have a good time or express themselves. He says, you don't want to party in, the, in wine. You want to party in the Spirit. And that's literally what he says. He says, you don't have to get drunk on wine. You've got something far better. Just get drunk on the Spirit. Because people that drink in wine so often, there's such sorrow that comes with that. He says, we don't have to do that. We've got such thanksgiving. You can generate enough joyfulness and expression and celebration in your own life if you just think of how good God is and just celebrate Him that you don't need any substance to help you feel better about life. You don't need to... Have you noticed that with people? They live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday's coming, baby. Then I'm going to drink... I'm going to get wasted so that I can forget Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, and the tougher the people's lives are, the more they drink to just forget, and then they'll tell you on Saturday morning they wake up feeling terrible and having to drink some concoction, you know, with weird things in it so that I can feel better, and then they'll say, wow, last night was awesome. I can't remember anything. It's like, Really? But as a Christian, I look forward to Friday night. Sometimes we've got friends coming around. We've got a bunch of friends coming this afternoon to come and visit us. And we don't have to drink. We don't have to, you know, forget. We remember. We celebrate. We come together. We sing songs. We tell each other how good our God is. And that generates within us such a joy that you don't have to go later and think, where's my money? Did I really say that? Whoops, I kissed my best friend's wife. I can't even remember. We don't have to do things like that because we are in the Spirit of God. So we've got something so much better. Come on. Wisdom is making the most of opportunities, not wasting opportunities. Wisdom is not about, oh, can we just forget life? Wisdom is making the most of every opportunity. And that's the heart of Paul. So he says, in this world with all its struggles, switch on your light. Shine your light when you've had a tough week. Switch on your light and say, Lord, thank you that I can shine your light, your truth, on this my experience, this that I'm struggling with. That's, those are the first two parts. Now we're going to get to the really juicy part. Husbands and wives. And the wonderful word, submission. Are you ready for this? All the wives, are you ready for this? Okay. 
We know Ephesians 5 verse 21 onwards very well. Often when you go to a wedding, you'll hear, or if you go to any talk on marriage, then we extract this little piece of information out of the Scripture so often as preachers and teachers, and we teach people about the biblical principles. And what I want to do this morning is go a little bit underneath the familiar stuff and to just help us be aware of where God's coming from and where the writer of Paul in this situation, Peter in other places, where the writers of the New Testament come from when they talk about these things so that we can orientate ourselves and be aware of just what they're really saying to us. Because I think in our modern day culture, so much of this gets a little bit misinterpreted. So if we can read it and understand it the way the original hearers understood it and within their context, perhaps it'll help us a little bit. Now, a common thing that happened in that time, and, and Neil Bester and I, we had a good conversations this week as we were, he's preaching at the South this morning, and we were collaborating a little bit on this message and sharing information, and he shared this idea with me about that. It was a common thing in the days that they had what was called a household code, that in the first century time in, 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 the, in life, there were certain ways that they prescribed or indicated to people how homes should be run. And our households should be run. And so the, the Greco-Roman households had a, had a code that told them, this is how a household works. And in the Greco-Roman code of the day, households were run by what was called the pater familias, or the father of the family. This was the common thing. So a code was often prescribed to the culture of the day to say that, how does everybody in a family relate to the father of the household? And most of the codes that were present and written and circulated in the time, what they did was they said to everybody, this is the head of the household, the father of the household, and this is how the rest of you must relate to that person and be in obedience or service or uh, submission to that person. It very few times did you find in any of those household codes anything said to how the father of the household was supposed to behave because he became the supreme authority in a household. And the rest of people, they needed to be taught, how do you now live life with this pater familia, the father of the household? So in Col Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, the, the leaders of the Christian church took this idea but changed it and wrote a Christian household code. And they, because remember now, most of their people that came to church, if not all, I mean, obviously all, not most, all of the people that came to the church came from the culture around. And so when they came into Christianity, the Christian leaders said, there's things that you need to change. We don't practice it the same way as what the culture did. And a household code was one of those things. So they provided a household code, a household code to the believers, these new believers, and said, this is how we practice and these are the things that are important to us as Christians, and they would teach these household codes. Now, we read some of these household codes, as we will just now, but we read it with a lot of distance that has happened between us and the first century Christian. We, we take for granted so much of the things that has happened that has brought us to a new place in terms of how we live in our households today. But remember, these guys were writing to, writing to people that had a certain context, that among the Jews of the day, as also amongst the Romans and the Greeks, women were viewed as secondary citizens with few or no rights. The pious male Jew said a prayer, a daily prayer, which he thanked God for not making him a woman. And he could divorce his wife, there's a prayer for you, 
I dare any husband to pray that out loud in front of your wife and see what happens to you. But it was so common in the day that it was accepted. Uh, any Jewish hu husband could divorce his wife by simply giving her a letter or a bill of divorce that says, I'm done with you, and, uh, and which then meant she, was she could get remarried, but a woman didn't have the right to do the same thing. It was heavily weighted towards the men. The society that Paul lived in was completely patriarchal, dominated by men. It was a terrible time for women as they were viewed as being inferior to men and were given relatively little freedom. They received minimal education, could not be witnesses in a court of law, and typically were kept from public life. When girls married, usually between the age of 12 and 16, they were expected to take the religion of their husbands. They were either under their fathers, their husbands, or some other male relative's authority all their lives. Within marriage, Roman law gave husbands complete authority over their wives, who were in many ways seen as the husband's possession. So this was the culture of the day. So the codes that were written by the Romans and the Greeks and even the Jews organized life in such a way. And it basically practiced a belief that said, women are inferior to men. Ontologically, women are in, from origin, women are inferior to men. From the word go, based in their, in their beginning, from women are inferior and less than men. So this was the culture of the day and how it was practiced. So Paul writes a different code. I want to read to you just from verse 21 to 24, and let's read it together. Now read it with this kind of information in mind. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now we read it today and we go, ooh, that doesn't sound so great. That doesn't sound so wonderful. Now let me ask you to do the following. Sean said I must do the, use this example. Can you close your eyes for a moment? Hold on to your wallet, close your eyes. <laughs> or your husband or your wife. Whatever is more, de more dear to you, hold on to that. And close your wife. Ach, your eyes. <laughs> 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 close your eyes. Just close your eyes. I'd like you to think of a seafaring vessel, a boat. Can you think of a boat? Any of you? Just in your mind, just get a picture of a boat. Now, if you're Afrikaans, I mean a boat. Nee, a boat, nee, a boat. Just so that you don't get that wrong. A ship. Okay, now open your eyes. Who of you thought of a seafaring vessel that has masts with sails? Anybody put up your hands if that's the kind of thing you thought of. Who of you thought of something that looks like an oil tanker? There's like two people. Okay, so that's not very... How, how many of you thought of something that looks like a, a, a battleship? How many of you thought of a little fishing dinghy or a trawl? How many of you thought of a little rowing boat, a canoe? Can you see we all, all thought of different things from one word? A cruise ship. That's what Sean and Trudy thought of, yes. Oh, how many cruise ships do we have? Ah, you see, I know. Okay. Tells me where your minds are. So 
Close your eyes again. Hold on to your possessions. Close your eyes. Now let me say another word and what picture comes into your mind? Submission. Submission. Now perhaps you'll not have a one picture, but a thought, a feeling, a concept will come into your mind. Now the question I want to ask you is that concept, that feeling that you have, where does that come from? Is it from what you saw in your home where you grew up? Is it from what you see the practiced in whatever culture you come from? Is it perhaps a response to pain that you've seen people go through? Is it from somebody that taught a teaching to you on this? You can open your eyes now if you haven't done so already. We all again have different pictures and thoughts in our mind. And this is tricky and we therefore have responses to this, a word like this, but I think it's so valuable if we can come to the scripture and say, Lord, we submit our feelings and our thoughts to what we believe the scripture teaches us about a concept of this nature. So Paul writes this and he says, first of all, in verse 21, he says, we must submit one to another. What he's saying to us as the people of faith, Christians, he says, as a Christian, you must become comfortable with this principle of submission. Every single one of us must live a life where we find it comfortable to submit in the right places. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? That we can discuss a little bit. But we can't escape the fact that he says we all have to practice submission. He strengthens it in another place where he drives the point home really well. In Philippians 2, he writes to the Philippians. And he says, you must have the same attitude as was present in Christ. That although he was God, an equal with God, had a throne in heaven, this, the highest authority, he didn't hold on to that position. He didn't hold on to his rights. He let go of it. And he came to earth and he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He, he took on the lowest form that he could in terms of our context, rid himself of all his rights and all his power, took on the form of a servant, submitted to the point where he allowed us to kill him. And Paul writes and says, you and I as believers must have the same attitude as Christ had. We must be comfortable with what it means to submit. That's why the, the, the verse in verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is our reference point when we think of the word submission? Is it your culture? Is it my culture? Is it how my dad and my mom did it? No, it's Christ. Christ is our reference point for what it means to submit. The way he practiced it is the way the scripture says we have to practice it. Now think about it like this. God stood in front of the world with its tremendous problems and its sickness and its darkness. And God said, we are, love these people. We have to fix this problem. So Jesus in history past said, I, as co-equal in the Trinity, will take on this responsibility. And I will go. And I will take on the form of a human being and I will die so that they can be one. Could God have overpowered us? Could God have, you know, done some other thing 
But God said the only way he's going to overcome our evil is through submission. Through submission. Bring light into the darkness through somebody prepared to be stripped of all their rights and powers and to come and step into this world. Now you and I, the scripture says, we are like Christ. We are sent into this world. Sometimes the terrible verse in the Bible. As lambs led to the slaughter. The principle is, in the same way Jesus overcame the sin and the, and the, and the, the, the terrible things of this world through being lowly, humble, submission, the same way you and I in that same spirit needs to walk into this world. We are not going to overcome evil by dominating over it, being stronger than it. We are going to overcome evil in the same spirit as God did, by loving, humbling, serving. That's why Jesus said, do as I do. Now, I'm not saying we don't stand up for things that are wrong. I'm not saying we become pushovers, but it's the spirit that is within us. We have to be comfortable with that spirit that says, Lord, send me into this world. So Paul writes this to these New Testament believers. Now for us, we must just remember, and the household code goes from 521 to 69. And in the last portion in chapter 6, we're not going to have time to read it, but please go read it at home. He talks to slaves and masters. And he talks about how the relationships with slaves and masters should be. And then he ends the, the, the portion with this scripture and, he, and this, these words. And he says, and there is no partiality with him. Him, capital letters, with God. There is no partiality with God. And this is where the household code of the Christian became fundamentally different to the household code of the world. Because the household code of the world presumed that there was a hierarchy of value. Men, women, children, slaves. And order in that world was as long as men is on top, dominating everything else, there's order. Paul says, not only here, but in all his other writings and the other New Testament writers says, there's no such hierarchy and order in the kingdom of God. There is not such a thing. Intrinsically from the beginning, from the word go, men and women were created equal. Equal. Come on, this is a good place to clap hands. From the word go, when God made us, he did such a careful job of how he made Adam and then Eve out of, to communicate this to us, that these two are equal. Ontologically, they have the same value. So on that foundation, we stand and we look at our household. And Paul includes the, to the slave, he says this, because if there was a person in that community and in that time that had the most reason to feel like they were less than anybody else, it was the slave. But Paul says to the slave, you are equal with your master. Talk about problems. Because imagine this, think, bring it to our context now. Sunday morning, we are arriving for church. A household in those days consisted of father, mother, children, and slaves. They were part of the household. So here comes the Maximus family driving to church on a Sunday morning. And they always sit in the same row, third from the front. And you'll see them filing into the church for worship. Dad walks in, mom walks in, children walks in, and slaves walk in. And they all sit in the same row, third row, coming to worship God together. This is a household. 
This is what a household looked like. So Paul writes to this whole household, not just to the father, not just to the mother, not just to the children or the nuclear family, including the slaves. He says, the slaves, you're part of this. And he starts reorganizing their relationships. And he says to them, you've got to understand that you are equal. In Galatians 3, 28, he writes and says, there's no longer slave. It doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. God's perfect plan is that there would be nobody that is in any way, shape, or form, in practice, in life, less than anybody else. Because that's not how he created it, and that's not what he wants for eternity. But how many of you know that we now live in that uncomfortable middle in the reality where we are going from something towards something, but we're not there yet? So Paul, some people struggle with him writing to the slaves and talking about the relationship with slaves and masters because they think Paul is validating slavery. And he's saying it's right, it's okay to have slaves. No, that's not what he's doing at all. He's not taking a position on slavery. He's pastoring his people. A big difference. Paul could have said, as the church, or, the, or instructed church leaders and pastors to say, as the church, we do not believe in slavery. Therefore, if you have a slave, you're not allowed to come to church. Or if you are a slave, you're not allowed to come to church. Because then they take a position. But as churches, our job, first of all, is to pastor and disciple God's people. To take them from the brokenness and the darkness of the world and shine God's light on it. And so that through time and by the working of the Spirit, people begin to change and set free. Paul consistently encouraged people. It became practice in the church that they started setting their slaves free and releasing their slaves because they were under the light of the Word of God. But he had to pastor people through these difficulties. This is uncomfortable, hey? This is not easy to talk about. But this is the heart of the, of the Father. And so the, and Paul writes to the slave, and if you read it in, in um, let me just read that one section quickly. Uh, let me just find it here quickly. Where did I put this now? I, I can't find it now. But if you go read it, and he says to the slaves, honor your masters. And think of Eunesimus, the story but from a place of knowing that you are free in God and that you are equal in value. You are no less than anybody else. He changes fundamentally, he starts changing the way society is built. And through Christianity, society started changing. And today we live with certain freedoms and certain understandings that was brought about because of the shining of the light of the Scripture. Let me, I'm running over time, so... Forgive me for this, but let me just say the last thing. So when we come to the word submission, whether it's between husbands and wives, we must understand that word as Paul draws it into the context of the whole of Scripture. It's not a word that he just extracts and uses in this context. It is a word that describes God's ways throughout Scripture. And we must view it in that context. There's a couple of things we have to understand about the word submission. The word submission speaks of a highly voluntary act. It is something you give voluntary, like Christ volunteered his submission. There's no, in the Trinity, it's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Can I say that again? 
Look at me and see if you agree. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit in terms of order and ranking. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one, co-equal with one another. But for the purpose of certain needs and situations, they move around in terms of submission. You could go read Corinthians where it talks about how Christ will, bring, will rise up and all things will be brought under subjection to Him and He becomes the highest authority. But when He comes to heaven, He presents everything to the Father. It's this mutual submission that they live in, this spirit that operates between them where they prefer one another. Does that sound like Paul's instruction he gives us? Prefer one another. It's this principle that operates in the Scripture, particularly in the time of where we now live between the brokenness of the curse, and remember in the curse where it was said, and, and the wife will strive for the husband, and the husband will dominate over his wife, where that's the broken past, and we are on our way to the perfect future. Remember in Matthew 22, they asked Jesus, they said this woman was married seven times on earth. When she gets to, to heaven, who's going to be her authority in heaven? Which of the seven husbands? They weren't asking a marriage question, they were asking a property question. Who's she going to belong to? What did Jesus say to them? No one will be given in marriage in heaven. What is the perfect state in heaven? Total, complete equality. Never influenced by the struggles of this world. And that's where we're going to. And as the church of the Lord Jesus, we want to see that manifest right now in our midst in the way we live in our culture, in the way we practice our faith, we want to see that which is not yet in some way become manifest in this world. So therefore, we draw to the Scripture and we say, Lord, shine your light for us on this word submission. And you know where the light shines from? It's from the Trinity itself. I don't have time this morning, unfortunately, to unpack this, so I'm really sorry if I'm now posing more questions in your heart than giving you answers. But that's also okay. Go read the Scripture discuss these things, talk about it. But it's the heart of the Father to say, I have made you in my image. Both man and woman, both come out of the image of God. Not one more than the other. Men alone could not represent who God is. Can the men say amen to that? <laughs> Women alone cannot represent who God is. And this, I didn't say amen to that. And no men allowed to say amen to that. And God did this amazing thing in his wisdom where he said, if you want to see, and remember Paul writes in Ephesians 5, for this is the mystery of Jesus with the church. You see represented in some way in the relationship of a husband and a wife. And when you see that beautiful relationship, you, it's the one place on earth where you have the highest chance to see something of the intricacy and the delicacy of the love of God, represented with a man and a woman, co-equals with one another. But in the space of this reality, understanding that they each bring different things and come to it with a heart of willing submission. We cannot escape that the Scripture says in this context that the, there's a, a submission that the wife brings into the household. But have you noticed 
that as the other household codes were mainly addressed to the men and very little to the, mainly addressed to the fathers, very little to the rest of the family, our household code is mainly addressed at the father. Have you noticed that? That most of the verses in Ephesians 5 talks to the men about what their responsibilities are, what, what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to create the atmosphere of love in the home that makes it possible for the rest to voluntarily submit and to be very comfortable and easy to do that. I want to tell you, man, in my home, this is my job. I create the love framework in our house by serving and loving first. I must make it possible for the rest of them. That's why it says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't drive them mad with rules and laws. Love them first. Then rules and laws fit on top of that the same way as Paul does with us when he talks about our moral choices and things. First love. But it's in that space where something beautiful happens. And our marriages, our Christian unions become so important in God. Now, this is part of my challenge. I'm speaking to a, a bunch of people here this morning that all come from brokenness. And you're all on your journey towards that which is God's perfection. And we won't reach all of it on this, in this life. We'll reach it in heaven, but we'll have some of it on earth. Now, you may be in, a, in some way, shape, or form, whatever, along that journey. You may be single. You may have been married, have been remarried, or unmarried, or not married, have been never married. You can be single parent. All of that. You are equal before God. And He is displaying through you His glory and His beauty. But we all value marriage relationships. Even if you've never had one, even if you will never have one, we value marriage relationships because of this, where the Scripture says there's something that gets released in that context of the practice of agape love that becomes quite similar to what you see in the Trinity. We can have it in other places also. But in the marriage union, there is this idea that God wants to show the world. So I celebrate your marriage. And we say, Lord, let your light shine upon us. That we will communicate to the world this message. You are made in the image of God. And you are equal. You are no less than anybody else. Doesn't matter what your gender, your race, your age, nothing. And if we can give that message and live that message in, in real ways to this world and from that place shine a light, then we can help the world. You know that currently there are, as far as I know, 63 official genders in the world. Gender. 63. Because the world is struggling with the, what they experience as the limitations of boxing somebody in a gender. And they're trying to break through from that. The problem is as they try and do that, they move away from a loving father. And it becomes more and more difficult to understand these things. Our place is to operate in that space of the love of God and how that defines us more and before anything else defines us. And let that definition spread from there. And that's a whole different topic. But can we be the light in the world? By staying with the Scriptures. Understanding the heart of God through the Scripture. Will you stand with me? I'm so sorry for going over this morning. And 
And I also ask that you forgive me if I have caused you questions in your mind. And can I encourage you that we have ongoing conversation and, and go to the Scripture, seek the Scripture, so that together we can be informed by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence that's been among us in such a powerful and beautiful and real way this morning. Thank you that you're inviting us into your presence. You're inviting us into new places, into places where there's a broad space for us to live in, into places where we can be free in you, each of us as you've made us, as you've called us. And I pray for every person that heard this message this morning, every person that viewed this message. I pray, Lord, that there would be a stirring in our hearts, a hunger, a passion for your truth and for your light so that we will allow your light to shine within us and affect us and change our behavior and change our thinking so that through us the light can shine in the world, that we would truly be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, even in these matters of how our households represent you, Lord. Whether our households has everything that we think is normal or whether our households has other elements to it, our households can display the glory of the Lord. And I pray for that to be present in each of us. Lord, I pray your blessing over every person in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.